world has gone insane. Cosplayers rule the conventions, gamers dominate the tabletop, and the internet. Sci-fi subjugates the movies, and fantasy rules the bookstore with an iron fist. Only one group can bring order to this unruly mob. A team of uber geeks, masters of the nerdly arts, trained for decades in the hobby shops and basements of the nation. Mobilized by the secret masters, they are the Department of Nerdly Affairs. Greetings, operatives, and welcome to the Department of Nerdly Affairs, Episode 1. We're your hosts, Rob Patterson and Don Chisholm, and today we're going to discuss the books Ready Player One and H. Beam Piper's Space Viking. We're also going to discuss the idea behind the common writing advice, Write What You Know, the techniques of Stephen King, and why writers have a lot to learn from H.P. Lovecraft and the Scottish pirate metal band Ailstorm. All this and a heaping helping of magic white guys are ahead for you in this episode of the Department of Nerdly Affairs. So, Don, how are you doing today? I'm here. Okay, that's good. That's good. Well, <laughs> that's a start, and I think we can work out from that. So let's talk about our topic of the evening, which is going to be science fiction novels. What do you think about science fiction novels, Don? They're overrated. Okay, why are they overrated? Bring back the Western. Well, many would claim that there's not much difference between science fiction novels and Westerns, actually. And um, they would probably be right, especially if you've read some classic science fiction like Lensman, for example, or some of the works of H. Beam Piper, which I'm going to talk more about later. Hello? Hello? Okay, now you're fine. For some reason, it was literally like a pit opened underneath you and you just suddenly <laughs> dropped away. And I could hear this tiny, tiny little voice at the end going, help me, help me. That's funny. And I was just <laughs> watched that. Yeah, well, you know, I watched that when I was like 11, uh -huh. and it's still to this day, I literally can see that scene and literally <laughs> hear that voice. That boy did that thing fuck with me. Yeah. Oh my god. I watched it like 20 hours ago, and you can tell the spider's a puppet, and it still freaked me out. <laughs> exactly. Like horrifying things ever committed the film. It is. The three films that I think terrified me the most, actually, in my life, have been that film, uh -huh. uh, that film... To the point where I actually never watched the Jeff Goldblum remake either, because I was just like, oh, I don't think so. I can't take this again. It's not as bad. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it's Jeff Goldblum. But watching him being tortured is not as bad. <laughs> and let's see, uh, Poltergeist, oh. which I saw when I was like 12, and it kind of messed me up for a bit. The clown? I was literally... The clown. Okay. <laughs> it's, I was looking under my bed for ages. <laughs> Next on the list was Salem's Lot, even though I only saw like five minutes of it. And it's, of course, the window scene. Yeah. Tap, 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 tap. <laughs> I literally, for for months after that, every night, if I woke up during the night, I would stare at my window, <laughs> worried that there was, that kid was going to come and to start tapping at my window. That's weird. And, mm -hmm. Everybody I know was absolutely horrified by that film. Like, everybody right? I know. Right. Huh. Except me. I didn't. Even as a kid, I used to root for the monster, so they didn't scare me so much. Oh, okay. I, I can see that. Well, like I said, I've never even watched the whole film. Right. I, I even bought the book last year because I thought, okay, well, I'm going to read Stephen King. Why not read Salem's Lot? That's one of his classics and everything. And I got through the first couple of chapters. I didn't even get to the monster part. Uh -huh. In the first couple of chapters, they introduced the nicest, sweetest people <laughs> you have ever seen in your entire life. And I'm, I'm looking at this going, holy fuck, I can't watch these people get ripped <laughs> apart. 
They really do. He does an amazing job. That's one of his great talents, I've realized. Stephen King's great talent isn't the monsters. It's making you fall in love with his protagonist so quickly that you don't want to see anything happen to them. <laughs> he could do anything to them. It doesn't matter because that's his skill, is making you fall in love with them. Uh, and write 100,000 books a week. Well, he writes like a couple hours every morning without fail every day of every week of a year of his life. <laughs> I've read his bio. That's exactly what he does. Right. Except when he got fucked up by the car accident, then he had to take a while off. Right. But except for that, and even then he tried writing, it just turned out to be complete crap, so it didn't work out so well. Right. Uh-huh. You know this story? Do you know what happened to him and the car accident and everything? Yeah, and the drugs, and that's how we got back some overdrive. Well, there's that too, but after the car accident, they put him on uh, SSRIs, the um, everything drug, mental drugs, basically. Right. And that was what kind of screwed him up because prior to that, of course, his brain was just going a thousand miles a minute. And then suddenly that those drugs kind of like shut him right down. <laughs> and so he didn't know what to do for a while, but eventually kind of either got used to them or weaned himself off them or whatever. I don't know. Right. And since then, yeah. <laughs> He's uh, doing pretty well. They put him on meds and he turned into Julie Bloom. Ah! My gosh. Stephen King and Judy Bloom were the same person. He's used an alias before. Wow. (laughs) I'm actually going to post that on Facebook or something. (laughs) (laughs) That is awesome. See how long it's on CNN. Exactly. Oh my, you're probably right. Actually, that would be Reddit. If I post on Reddit, it would make the news sites within a day, and within two, within two days, it would be on CNN. That's the way that site works. Because the news guys basically just troll Reddit, right. looking for interesting stories that people think are cool and that they can snatch and publish on their news websites. And then CNN trolls the news websites looking for stuff they can steal and put on <laughs> CNN to fill time. That's how our media system currently works. Reddit is actually the source of pretty much everything. So we've gone back to the 1800s, but faster. Much faster. (laughs) Damn kids. The hell are they learning in school? Yep. Um, Exactly. Well, uh, people do remember it. I mean, it does get... Here, I just finished Ready Player One. And uh, (laughs) in that book... There's a certain point where the character has to, main character has to go on the lamb because the evil corpse are like hunting him. Right. He's the, our young hacker character. And he manages to hack in and give himself a new identity, which of course the new identity he gives himself is Bryce Lynch. <laughs> that's, that's, his, that's, that's his new identity. Right. Now, but again, I wonder how many people reading it get the reference. And actually, interestingly enough, the author never tells you what the name Bryce Lynch means or anything like that. You either get it or you don't. Right. It's one of the very, actually, one of the very few things in the book. He doesn't spend a page or two explaining <laughs> to you. Maybe he figures the lost cause. I mean, for example, he creates Max Hedrum to be his personal digital assistant. Right. And, of course, he spends several pages explaining who Max Hedrum was, <laughs> how he's relevant to popular culture, and blah, 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 blah. <laughs> but never explains the connection with Bryce Lynch. Right. Which is, okay, well, that's fine. And a little weird, but okay. Well, no. If you read the book, you'll understand why. He just... The the book, it's basically a, uh 80s pop culture trivial pursuit game right. with a plot. That would kind of be the best way to describe it. Okay. Uh, actually, it's a good book. It, ha- it, has, it has actually kind of a cool ending. He did a good job with it in the sense that... It's incredibly dense in, like, uh, pop culture material and such, and he did a good job with the world. Oh, yeah, I wanted to talk to you about that. I remember you said that it was the American Beauty thing with Fight Club and American Beauty and this and, um, was it? Uh, Damon. Uh, Damon, yeah, Damon. 
I wouldn't quite. I wouldn't say so. I would disagree with that analogy. Having you know read both of them, I will say it's very different than Demon. There is some of the same ideas in there. Though there was a point where it literally could have turned into something that was very similar to Demon, right. and the author zags as far away from that point as he possibly can. Huh. The whole point of the book is that pretty much everyone's living in this VR world, so the real world is going to shit. Right. At least that's that's the I guess you could call secondary point to the book. The first point is like video games are awesome, <laughs> and oh sorry, the eighties are awesome. Second point is video games are awesome. Oof. Third point is is that humanity maybe should actually spend more time in the real world and actually sort their shit out. But that's really, like, terror-terror. <laughs> right. Really terror And in the end, it's just enough there that you can say, well, then, you know, that's an interesting idea, an interesting point. But he never actually explores it because that would get in the way of, video games are awesome! <laughs> and that's, yeah, that's where it kind of comes from. So, but it's an interesting book. It's fun, especially if you lived through the 80s and you can get all the references and everything. It's actually kind of amusing. But it's like shit tons of window dressing and a bit of plot underneath to actually make it all go together. So it's mostly fluff? Yeah. But if you were to actually cut out all the, you know, 80s crap and that, it would probably only be about 30,000 words. It's kind of a book designed exactly for our generation, for Gen Xers, so they can feel very smart reading it. And it's like, oh, I get that. I get that reference. I get that reference, too. <laughs> So it's, it, it's, it's, the 90s. it's an ego massage. It's the 90s mm -hmm. in book form. It's the 90s in book form. Kind of, yeah. It's kind of a, a child children of the 80s ego massage in a way. But the interesting thing is if it's mostly fluff, that's very 80s. There is that. So it's meta. Well, the way the plot is structured, the way everything is structured, it's hard to tell whether he's doing that on purpose because it fits in with the style of everything else. Just remember, it's all a video game, right? right. He's presenting it to you as a video game. So in a way, it has a video game level plot and everything. But it's hard to tell whether he's doing that on purpose or he just doesn't know any different. Huh. That's the one confounding variable I found. Okay. I mean, there are certain points where I go, is he just not very good or is he doing this because it's just like a video game? And I'm just giving him the benefit of the doubt and assuming, okay, it's because it's supposed to be like this because it's a video game plot structure. But it's hard to tell. Apparently his second novel follow-up one, that, which was, he basically just rewrote The Last Starfighter and called it Armada instead. Okay. That was his second book and everyone hated it. Okay. So it wasn't a sequel to this one either. So here, having seen and heard that, I leaned towards the idea of, I think he just wrote a really simple plot structure because that's the best he could do. <laughs> well, there's, there's another way of looking at that. Okay. Uh, I think back to uh, Stanchu's theory of uh, being a professional singer. Oh, okay. What is it? Or Stanchu used to say... You, mm -hmm. you didn't have to be good to be a pro, but you had to find a style that matched your singing. Ah, okay, that makes sense. And the best example of that would be a Ailstorm. Okay, how so? Well, because the lead singer for Ailstorm, who, if you're not familiar, is a Scottish pirate metal band. The lead... I, they're familiar I, in that I've heard their name, but not that I know them offhand. Yeah, well, go you, on. You have to hear him. Um, he's a terrible singer. Mm -hmm. But he sounds like an old drunk pirate. So he's perfect for the band and their music is brilliant because of it. That actually makes absolute perfect sense. You just have to find your niche, basically. Mm. The niche that suits you best, suits your talents best. Right. Actually, I totally understand that. That's something I'm going through with my writing at the moment. I've been, I'm trying to find what niche really makes my writing come alive and really works best for me. I've kind of been more angling towards young adult stuff, but I spent my whole summer writing, I don't know if I told you about this, I wrote like 80,000 words of a young adult novel. And 
eventually I got to basically the beginning of Act 3, and I basically just let it sit because I looked back and realized that the book I had written didn't really match the ending that was supposed to come next. So I, (laughs) and I ran out of time in the summer. I couldn't write it anymore. I had to start school stuff, but it was an experience though. I actually, I wrote technically, I wrote it one and a half times already, even to get to that point. Right. And it was me discovering, does this kind of style work for me exactly? And I'm not sure that it does. I could do it. It's just, I'm not sure that it, it was my niche. And so, yeah, I'm just figuring that stuff out. So again, total, I totally understand exactly what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. So you just have to find the niche, the, the stuff that works best for you, that suits your talents, et cetera. Yeah. And the form. Mm-hmm. Oh, I always think uh, for writing, uh, go with H.P. Lovecraft. Right. Lo- okay. Lovecraft, from a technical point of view, was a terrible writer. Right. But his ideas were interesting. And he's writing mm-hmm. about bizarre, indescribable madness and his weird rambling, throwing a couple more adjectives style fit that really well. Right. Okay. That makes sense. I would hate to read an H.P. Lovecraft romance novel, <laughs> uh, although part of me would be curious. Oh, there an H.P. Lovecraft sex scene. <laughs> that would be... Somebody did one. There's a, a short film mm-hmm. that somebody did as a, uh, essentially a teenage H.P. Lovecraft and sex ed class. Oh, I think I've seen that. Yes, I have. Yeah, with the diagrams on the board start moving, and it's all from his point of view. And oh my god, is it disturbing? Yes, I have seen that. It's been a long time, but I've seen it. I know what you're talking about. Yeah, because that's where I think the uh, right wit, what you know, comes from. Right is to write something. Uh, I'll use the the adjective convincingly, although it's not the word I wanted. You have mm-hmm. to have an intimate knowledge of what you're writing. Yes, I would agree with that. And a lot of people have limited experience or limited ideas they've knocked around in their own head in order to cobble something tangible together from. Right, right. Mm-hmm. So, and I think that's that's where that comes from, and people will find their niche. You know, uh, okay. We can't all be Osamu Tezuka. Yes, that's absolutely true. I can't argue with that statement. Mm-hmm. Can't all be masters of everything. Actually, oddly enough, that's John Grisham's advice. I remember John Grisham, the guy who wrote all those like lawyer thrillers everyone went nuts for in the 90s and such. Right. He he was a lawyer and he just he decided one day to start, you know, writing novels and that's what he knew, so that's what he wrote and everyone went, went nuts for it. Yeah. And so comes it comes back down to the old writing truism, write what you know. Mm-hmm. He just and that's what he tells everyone. It's like, look, whatever whatever it is you're passionate about and that you know backwards and forwards, and turn that into a story, right? Or at least turn it into the window dressing of a story, so that it'll be the same story as everyone else writes underneath, right? Right. Well, maybe. I mean, well, come on. I mean, I confess not having to read a John Grisham novel, but I'm willing to bet money that uh, if I were to sit down and read one, what would happen is I would find that it's probably a really generic thriller story you know underneath the hood so to speak but the rest of the of the model is decked out with like really cool lawyer stuff and really cool like detailed background about lawyer stuff and everything that he knows really well but again underneath it's a generic thriller plot about some woman who got herself into trouble by discovering that her lawyer boss actually works for the mob and she discovers secret files and now the she's got to decide what to do and then they find out she's got the files and so suddenly she's got the mob after her and she's probably trying to reach some um FBI agent who's roguishly handsome and who <laughs> offers to help her out 
And um, I don't think I need to go on. We know exactly how this plot goes because that's how it works. Right. I mean, that's the most classic formula for a thriller there is. You know, you put an innocent person, male or female, although females seem to work a little better, in danger. And you basically watch them get chased around by bad guys until the story comes to an end. Right. Ta-da, thriller. Kind of, although I don't know if it's your intent. You sound a little more harsh right. about that. And I would say that, oh, you're, you're absolutely right. Okay. But in a lot of ways, that's the way to do a good story is that you're, you're starting with a very mm -hmm. familiar base, but you do something right. different with it. Oh, no. And I, I do think that's a good thing. Actually, you're right. I am, I am being a little harsh on it. I mean, he wasn't a professional writer. I mean, so he, he had to work with a familiar base, the base that he probably got from watching you know, TV and movies like most people do. And then he just kind of went with it. And he put his lawyer stuff on top of that. And actually, that is a good thing. I, you're, you're right. I am being unnecessarily <laughs> harsh in the way I uh, put that. Bad Rob. Bad Rob. I'm sorry. I, I didn't mean to. Okay. So I was reading. You were? Yes, I know. It's an amazing thing. You're one of this them, aren't you? Yes, I am. I am one of them. One of them actually, I've been, I've been doing the audiobook thing. Okay. Like, uh, I've been on audiobook binge. In the last like six weeks, I've listened to like seven, seven or eight novels just on audiobook because I got tired of podcasts and I started like going crazy on, on the audiobooks. And I remembered that there's um, LibriVox, which has tons of free public domain audiobooks. Right. Anyway, so I just finished reading The Cosmic Computer by H. Beam Piper, who's an amazing uh, pulp writer from the, you know, mostly the 40s and the 50s, who wrote lots and lots of science fiction. He's most famous for uh, Space Viking, was one of his novels, right. and which is a much better book than it sounds like. Actually, there's a reason. It's one of the classics of science fiction. I'll get to that in a second. And he's also famous for uh, the Fuzzy Sapiens novels. Oh, that was him? Yeah, that was him. Oh, I had he, so, friends that were obsessed with those books. Yep, the the original Ewok books, basically. Yeah, I, at least I, I think they are. You know, this is one of those odd things where he also wrote a series called Paratime, which are about guys jumping time and dimensions. They're like trans temporal dimensional cops. Okay. Okay. And here's the weird thing: I have never read any of the fuzzy books, and I've never read any of the Paratime books, which are what he's most famous for. But I have read Space Viking and The Cosmic Computer, both of which are set basically in his far future setting. The Cosmic Computer is set during his Terran Federation period, and The Space Viking is set after the Terran Federation collapses, right. which doesn't happen in The Cosmic Computer. But, but one of the things that's really interesting about his style when he's writing his big science fiction novels there, because they're epics, is that they're so incredibly dense. But they're dense in not in the being paid by the word and I'm going to fluff this out as best I can style. Mm -hmm. They're dense in the I've got so damn much I want to say and I only get like 6,000 words because <laughs> this is serialized in a magazine. And I intend to get as many of those words out as possible and doing their job. And so his stuff is very exposition heavy, but he does it in just the right way. So it's actually very interesting. Even when he's telling you lots of background information, he still manages to do it in an interesting way. He still manages to make it appealing right. in some way. And his characters are actually all very interesting, although they're very Stephen King. They're all very <laughs> homespun. Yeah. He kind of writes science fiction westerns. 
In fact, actually, his stuff is so science fiction Western that I've been tempted to actually change a few names and stick it up on some Firefly fan boards uh-huh. <laughs> and tell them that it's Firefly fan fiction. And then when they're done going nuts over it to point out that, yeah, and it was only written 40 years before Firefly. <laughs> um, okay, anyway, um, neither here nor there. The key point is, is that Piper's style is very dense, which is very different than most modern stuff is. Yeah. And the other thing I found interesting is all of his stories, at least his science fiction epics, are all about people building stuff. And I think that's the most interesting thing about them. Right. They all present people who are engaged in a project to try to build and create. Now, sometimes it's civilization. Sometimes it's to create companies. He's very big on the whole corporate thing. He's, a, he's like a true, true right-wing libertarian guy. There's very few things that he does that don't involve large amounts of guns. Right. Um, and gun, guns are apparently just awesome. People should be wearing guns every day to defend themselves because that's the most awesome thing ever. <laughs> and yeah, anyway. And he every novel he does, if you read his stuff, you'll see. He has a speech about how... An armed society is a polite society and all that other stuff that you'll... I think Heinlein also tended to go that way, too. Yeah, Heinlein was really militaristic. He was, and Piper's kind of right there with him. So Heinlein, but it, Heinlein played both ends of that, too, though. Yes, he did, didn't he? Like, isn't the stranger in the strange land, isn't that kind of peacenik, though? It is, but and, and he'd do that like... Um, oh, there was another couple of his that I read that you'd read one and he was very pro-military... And then the next mm-hmm. one, he'd be very anti-military. The Moon is a Harsh Mistress is like that, too, mm-hmm. It's which is one of his most famous books. It's the one about the Lunar Rebellion, basically, where the people on the Moon basically get tired of being treated like crap. So they build mobile the, suits? Well, it's it's the original Gundam, in a sense, except they don't build mobile suits. That's, Sorry. That's too bad. That was Starship Troopers they did that. Starship Troopers is the one with the mobile yeah. suits, which... <laughs> Which is, of course, why mobile suits are called mobile suits, because they're from the mobile infantry from Starship Troopers. Yep. (laughs) I think I talked about this before, how it was in the 1970s and 80s. Was it you I was talking about this with? About how in the 1970s and 80s, the Japanese suddenly got all the 50s and 60s sci-fi novels translated. Like, there was a huge, big boom of that. And so that's why almost all Japanese 80s sci-fi is actually 1950s, 60s American sci-fi. Yeah, it's, I, was, I always wondered that because Lensman was super popular in the 80s in Japan. And that's yep. like, what, 30, 40 years too late? Way late. Lensman's from the 40s, dude. Yeah, yeah so yeah, yeah, 40 years too late. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, made me do math. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Well, if you want real math, it, the 85 was 30 years ago. Wow. Time flies. <laughs> but regardless, so... Oh, yeah, so where was I going with this? Okay, just to quickly backtrack. P- Piper's stuff is primarily about building stuff. In fact, to the point where you could almost describe Piper science fiction, at least, the st- again, this is his more galactic, you know, space science fiction stuff. Other than the fuzzy stuff, which may or may not be like this, because I haven't read it yet. It's got um, some of it when you mentioned the building, because th- that's... The fuzzies adapt mm-hmm. to other cultures. Okay. And the story is about how what happens to them when they encounter human explorers. Okay, that makes sense. Because his books, <gasps> I would almost describe at least these ones, as procedurals. Okay. In the sense that you're watching a procedure happen, except the procedure that's going on is watching someone create something in a science fiction setting. Right. It's stuff being built, and you're watching the events happening as this stuff is being created and built, whether, again, whether it's a corporation 
or whether it's uh, could be a mining colony, or in the case of, of course, going back to uh, Space Viking, inadvertently, they're actually creating a new federation, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. They, they start out as kind of meant to be privateers, but eventually they start to actually realize that they're going to have to put together, that they're putting together, I should say, a new organization, a new federation, a new interstellar alliance, so to speak. Right. Well, they bloodily carve their way through you know, <laughs> backwater colonies and do other horrible things, but they eventually realize that, you know, this space Viking thing doesn't really work out so well. And I just spoiled the novel for people, sorry. <laughs> Although that's not the main thrust of the novel. The whole main thrust of the novel, if you, you've read it, right? Yeah, because you sent me a copy. Wildly. Yeah, yeah, I, I remember I did. Yeah, okay. And the main thrust of the novel, of course, is about him trying to get revenge on the guy who stole his ship. Killed his fiance and killed his fiance and completely ruined his life <laughs> and his planet and his planet. <laughs> yep, pretty much. So he basically becomes a space Viking to track this other evil guy down and uh, kick his butt. Mm-hmm. And in the process, he kind of sort of helps reform a kind of new federation out of all of these worlds that don't really have any connection to each other anymore right. because their the great galactic civilization fell. Right. And so, again, procedural, even in that book, it's still about people building stuff. And I, what, let me just finish. And I find that fascinating because I, as far as I can tell, now, again, maybe I'm not well read enough in that, but most of the modern science fiction, hell, most modern fiction period is not about that. I've noticed that most modern stuff tends to fall in the category of people trying to solve a mystery. Yeah. But they're trying to solve a problem or a mystery, but it's not about building. It's not about creating at least most of the stuff that I've read and seen. But anyway, sorry, continue. Oh, I was going to say, uh, tying into a bunch of those points, the yep. interesting thing about Space Viking is it was very dense. Mm-hmm. but And he had a lot of exposition, but he didn't explain very much. What you would do is you would see something happening. Mm-hmm. And the explanation was there, even though he wouldn't explicitly state it. He mm-hmm. had a good sense of what you already knew. Right. And he was adding the extra parts. Right. Because the interesting thing is you talk about the, uh, the, the space Viking clan that he ends up being the commander of mm-hmm. on their bloody swath of destruction. As I remember, most of the novels actually about negotiations and the deals they're making in that. Yes, and that's true. And it's weird because it's still interesting, but it's because it moves because he knows you know what a diplomatic signing looks like. So he just gives you all of the stuff pertinent to his setting, and then right. you fill in the rest. And that's one of the reasons it feels so dense, because you already know this world, because he's taking everything you already know and just moving a little of it around and creating this whole new place. Yeah, exactly. Well, like I said, even that one is still kind of a space western. Like, there's this space western element to it, where, you know, that new frontier, so to speak. Right. Even though it's supposed to be a post-apocalyptic space western, basically. But still, it's still he's got that new frontier element. So he's drawing, again, as you say, on the elements you're already familiar with, the elements you already know. And he's playing with them and working around them and using the best bits, basically, Mm -hmm. to keep the story flowing and keep it interesting. And that's one of the reasons why I love Piper. I think that, for my money, he's one of the best science fiction writers I've ever read. I wouldn't say he's the best, but I'd say for what he does, he's one of the best. Should probably get more recognition, I think. He absolutely should. I mean, yeah. he's influenced a lot of stuff. Yeah, he, his books 
the mm-hmm. ones I've read, and I haven't read too many, and, and like I said, I had friends years ago who were obsessed, so I know a lot more about them than I have personal experience with. Mm-hmm. But he kind of reminds me of uh, the, the movie Blade Runner. Right. In that Blade Runner came out, and it mm-hmm. wasn't terribly popular with like the average viewer. Right. But it made a huge impact on everybody who made movies after it came out. Right. So there, I can see that. Yeah, and there's a lot of Blade Runner and everything that came after it, even though the movie itself wasn't that popular. Hmm. And I could I could see with a lot of, like a lot of Piper's books that a lot of people kind of will will say borrowed wholesale. Yes, I'd say so. Yeah, I would totally agree with that. I think that well, it was like I said earlier, I'd say that um, the stylistically most especially early 80s Japanese science fiction, especially we're talking things like L-Game, for example. Yeah. Um, L-Game has it in spades, but there are a lot of stuff like the... Here, even that uh, the hover cars that you see in early Japanese... Uh, in 80s, sorry, Japanese sci-fi and that, the way the, the hover cars, hover transports, all that stuff, that's all Piper. Yeah. that's a, that, Those are right out of Piper. There's not that many other science fiction stories where you'll see that... Uh, the same way, anyway. He calls it all contra-gravity stuff, but the way he describes it, it's exactly the way it is in most of the 80s anime stuff. Yeah, I could see that. And and even our stuff. Because mm-hmm. that, that's true. that gets to, I think, what part of the uh, the the problem with modern, and I, by modern, I'd say anything late 80s to now. Right. Is a lot of people would do things because that's just how it's done. Mm-hmm. Without an understanding of of and the the flying vehicles are a good example because you'll get flying vehicles and everything, mm-hmm. and there's no idea of how they work, right? And they 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 you miss out on in in creating something unique for your world by saying and it works like this, right? And you end up getting everything looking alike because most vehicles in modern science fiction the way they're like especially movies they right. they look like vectored thrust but they work like repulsor lift right and it's just because that's what everybody had seen and nobody stopped to, to to rethink them to say what would it look like if it was an actual vectored thrust vehicle how would that move how would that blah 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 right so you just get the same stuff over and over well some of it's also just aesthetics right i mean you want that vector thrust vehicle to look cool, so you design this cool-looking vector thrust vehicle, and then you kind of later on, you figure out kind of how it works, roughly. You know where the thrust kind of comes from. Even if those ports are nowhere near big enough to actually keep that vehicle aloft, you're just like, yeah, yeah, it comes from there. <laughs> well, that's what they used to do. What I find you've gotten since, like, yeah, late 80s, or especially the 90s, that you get the first half where you make it look neat, and then nobody ever stops to think, okay, well, what, what the hell does this thing do? How does it work? There's that. Definitely true. And that's why you get um, one of my favorite problems with science fiction mm-hmm. is why does nobody have night vision? They should all have night vision, yeah. really. Yeah, because and it's because aliens came out just before that proliferated, and aliens looked cool, and it had guys in, like, corridors and everybody just copied that nobody stopped to think you know we now know know what technology will be a little bit like because we've come up with advancements in the 10 years since and right yep yep you know because that was the uh uh the favorite example was the last riddick movie 
Right. Wherein the ad gets away from the guys in the spaceship again, and one of them mentions, you have to look out, he's got night vision. And you're like, well, then why don't you? Well, I think in Riddick's case, remember, it screwed up his eyes. That's why he has to wear those goggles, because his night, his vision is too sensitive to uh, be used in the daytime. He can only see at night, really, without the goggles on. It's true, but what I'm saying is I can go down to Canadian Tire and buy a device that does that now. Why can't people who have a spaceship have those? <laughs> okay, that's true. But that's where I say you're, you're getting that idea. They want the scene to look a certain way. That is Aliens. Yes, yeah, that's true. But they don't stop to take that time to think through, well, what would all of this mean? What would the, the unseen ramifications be, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, you're right. They don't think through stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, it goes back to your quintessential Batman Beyond example, mm-hmm. where somehow, even though it's the far future in Batman Beyond, everyone acts and behaves like it's the 1940s. Well, but not just that. It's It's the idea that... They did things in the setting mm-hmm. that didn't have the ramifications they should. But the the best example was the one where the uh, I think it was Cobra, mm-hmm. not the GI Joe Cobra, the DC Cobra, right? Familiar familiar theme. Yeah, yeah. Where he had come up with um, surgery where kids were getting like animal hybrid genetic alteration as a fashion statement. Sounds awesome. Yep. And they showed that these things were effective, that you could get like your bull body and it gave you super strength. You get like a snake body and it gave you snake abilities. Right. And this was a fashion statement. And then when somebody was coming to kill the mayor, they had a train with four guys with rifles. Well, where are the genetically altered attack dogs? Bro, yeah, exactly. You know, like you've, you've already shown that you can do that in this setting. It's just nobody writing it stopped to think. Why wouldn't they have that? Well, but that's the greatest flaw, I'd say, with science fiction in general, and always has been, is that often they don't think through the consequences of what they introduce. Yeah. You know, you want the neat shit, but you don't remember that that neat shit has consequences to your setting, to your characters, to your story, that you may may or may not want. It's the law of unintended consequences, right? Right. And so you have to... occasionally now not always i mean sometimes you just like go with it it's just the story just go with it but other times it's good to think that stuff through it makes for a stronger story and a stronger setting yeah i think it's it's kind of the we'll call it the star trek problem how you know the amazing device that they come up with to solve the problem of the week (laughs) of course disappears after that episode (coughs) well most of the time. Not always, I admit. Later on, they got a little better at it, but still. Well, I'd say the, the original wasn't too bad for that. Mm-hmm. Because, and I don't know, again, it, it goes to your discussing uh, Ready Player One. I don't know if it was intentional or not. Right. But they'd invent the new wacky wonder widget of the episode. But you got the impression that this thing was some special one-of-a-kind thing. Right. That that it, it wasn't like... Um, uh, there's the, the, they have this, what's it, the psycho tricorder that can read your thoughts. Right. But they, they made it seem like you needed somebody specially trained and this was a rare To device. use it, right. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. Because that was, even, just because they did like the dramatic reveal where it comes out and then the dun dun dun, and you go to the commercial. And... Right, yeah, exactly. But it made it feel like, like this was something, it, it wasn't common in that setting. Right. So when it doesn't show up again. Mm-hmm. You don't feel ripped off. 
Hmm. Whereas that makes sense when you got to like the old new Star Trek with with Picard and those guys. One of the problems with Wesley was like he could be drunk and completely change the laws of physics this episode. And you're like, well, then why didn't he do that this episode two later? Why just because? Yeah, and and then it got even worse because you'd get to like the later ones where it would be all about showing you the nifty thing, and that's where you got that problem of that didn't go away. You, you took that into evidence. You could use that now. Exactly. Exactly. As I've often commented, that was one of the things that got me watching the Stargate TV series, Stargate SG-1. They would introduce something, alien races, technology, whatever, that a couple episodes later, when they had a problem, they'd be like, hey, remember those guys we talked <laughs> to? Or remember that thing that we, we have in lockup? Let's go get it and try using that thing. And... That I loved that show for it. That was one of their best <laughs> traits. I mean, it was like the people who did it absolutely hated that ele- element of Star Trek, and they really, really wanted to fix it. So that's what they would do constantly. Right. Now, there's a catch. Inevitably, the guys they needed to call for help weren't home if it didn't fit the plot. Right. Or, if, or that gadget, yeah, its power cell ran out, or it just isn't effective on this particular problem. But at least they gave it some thought, and they actually tried, right? Yeah. It it makes sense within the setting as well, right? Like things and occasion. Sorry, and occasionally, just to finish off, if let's say they need the help from those guys they met a couple episodes ago, well, then the stir would end up being about. But our communication system is broken, so we have to do all this stuff to contact those guys. And when they eventually do contact those guys, they can help out. But the story ended up being about getting in touch with them, right? And that's that's awesome to me. That really works. Yeah, and, and and again, that's something you don't get you don't get as much nowadays. And I think it's it's because a lot of the nerdly arts, in particular, uh, go off uh, off of the script. Well, except the nerdly arts right now are a little bit different. Mm-hmm. I mean, Doctor Who accepted. Doctor Who is actually one of the few. I'd say truly episodic shows still on the air. Right. Most of the science fiction being done right now, if you actually watch some of it, is actually meant to be more serial. In theory. In theory, yes, that's true. I mean, the, some of the superhero stuff like Flash and Arrow and that is still, and Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., they tend to still be mostly episodic. But they all have now these overarching plot lines and these interconnected stuff that's going on. And so they often, they're so focused on the big plots and the drama, especially the drama and the big events that they don't even bother with the wacky wonder widgets anymore. Right. Not as often. Actually, some uh, Flash does, but that's kind of the nature of the show. Right. Because he's got a whole team of like tech guys who are backing him up. So usually each week they have to come up with either some new technique for him to defeat the bad guy with or some new gadget for him to defeat the bad guy with. Right. And that's fine. But again, although I will give them points, though, on The Flash, so far anyway, they're only just into season two, that stuff doesn't usually go away. Once it's introduced, it sticks around. Right. I'll give them points for that, sort of. Anyway, <laughs> although conveniently they do have stuff, some stuff burn out right after they use it, so conveniently they don't have to worry about it again now that I think about it. Yeah. But that, anyway. But, but that even then, you're, you're at least, you're at least mm-hmm. acknowledging it within the story. Yes, yeah, exactly. And I think that, as we said earlier, thinking through that technology and actually presenting it in a consistent way mm-hmm. in your story really helps to bring it to life. And that's something that, going way back, H. Beam Piper is really good at. Yeah. 
is really good at actually giving you the important bits and telling you what you need to know that you're not going to be familiar with, but in in a way that still kind of explains how they all work. I get the feeling he kind of had a engineering technical side to him. I don't actually know that much about the man himself. Right. Um, but he's definitely got some of that technical side to uh, the way he presents things. Yeah. Although I maybe he's not an engineer because the stuff he presents isn't dry and boring. <laughs> And he's good at explaining it to non-engineering types. Yeah, that's true. So that might be an indicator that he's not an engineer. Sorry, engineering types, <laughs> but that's the way it is. And going to your earlier point, too, on the Flash, mm-hmm. uh, when on the Flash you have a device that has limited uses or burns out, that fits right. the story, too, because you built it with a reliability number of five to save the hero points. Ooh, obscure gaming reference. <laughs> yes, that's exactly right. You want to give it a low reliability rating because you really just need to use it once, right? Right. And then after that, it can burn out, and because you barely spent any hero points anyway to to buy it and to purchase it for <laughs> your character, or whatever team, whatever, however that works. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so okay. So again, going back, since this seems to be a running theme for the story. Okay. So I find that, as I said, modern stuff doesn't tend to be about building things. I mean, I can think of a few examples of uh, authors who made their name on uh, stories that were about building stuff. Right. More slightly, not not that modern. I mean, James Clavell, if I remember right, who wrote Taipan, Shogun, and those books. Most of those, if I remember right, now you can correct me there, but if I remember right, it's been a while, were actually about characters building stuff in those settings as well. Kind of. A lot of them were magical white guy stories. Okay. So magical white guy sleeps with lots of beautiful exotic women and um, shows up. gets involved. Okay. Yeah, he's, he shows up. He's a better samurai than a samurai, solves all their problems, blah, 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 that kind of thing. Right. Okay. So they're magical white guy fantasy stories. Well... Actually, that describes a whole lot of uh, pulp <laughs> fiction, actually. There's a whole lot of fiction in general, which is probably why the feminists and the other groups are demanding that we have less magical white guy stories and more magical uh, female stories and more magical obviously uh, minority never, stories. Obviously, they've never heard of Japan. Or Well, here again, remember, though, Americans are myopic. <laughs> they only tend to look at the fiction that's being produced in English, which is reasonable. I mean, you know, what what else are they going to look at? Are they going to read stuff in Japanese? Um, yeah, just take the so, three years it takes to learn the language. and Three years, dude. To be able to, well, okay, if you, if you are really dedicating yourself, maybe three years. I can get um, by. I sound like a five-year-old, but I can get by. <laughs> I rest my case. It's not exactly like you're going to be reading um, any of the novels in Japanese. I can read a novel. Takes a long time. <laughs> I was going to say, it's going to take you a long time. Mind you, it'll do wonders for your Japanese by the time you're done. Yeah, I need four dictionaries to do it, but you know. <laughs> you could probably pull it off. That's true. So I guess that's always been one of my problems with the whole movement. I mean, I can, uh, with the whole other voices movement, or I don't know what exactly they call it, mm-hmm. but it's the movement right now to basically stop writing novels about white guys. Mm-hmm. It's this movement that exists, especially in the more social justice circles yeah. among writers, fiction, such. And it's an interesting conundrum. I mean, I can understand them wanting other voices and other perspectives, but at the same time, well, okay, just go write it then. If you are if you want to write stuff that's from, what, a black, transsexual, uh, Chicagoan, Chicagoan, whatever, perspective, go right ahead. No one's stopping you. Mm-hmm. 
Although I guess the argument would be made that the publishing industry is. Well, yeah. The publishing industry is selecting, and they're only selecting stuff that they think or know will work because they're business people. And, of course, that tends to be magical white guy stories. Yeah, but the nice thing about that is welcome to cyberpunk, the upside, where we don't need them. And that's something that um, I try to point out to people. We're in the age of self-publishing. Yeah. The only barrier between you and your audience is right now you actually writing your book. Mm -hmm. Um, There is a small marketing barrier, however, but it's the same marketing barrier that almost everyone else is facing. Yeah, and and there's the idea that if you're just kind of writing your book on the side, you don't... Although, actually, and this leads into another issue that I want to discuss with you. I was thinking of doing it as a separate show, but this could actually dovetail nicely into this, actually. Right. Um, Which is about... Audience expectations. Ah, okay. Because audience expectations are the, also one of the things that stand in the way of people of color or other minority groups that want to reach a large audience. I mean, yes, you can publish whatever you want out there right now. But however, the one problem is, even though we say that anyone can actually put a book out there, there's the problem of audience expectations. I mean, the audience have gotten used to, you know, white lead as a default, at least in English, because there is the idea that most English-speaking people are white, so they kind of go for that. But even foreign audiences, thanks to Hollywood, have gotten to this, used to this idea of white leads. And so if you give them, say, a Hispanic lead or an um, African-American lead or uh, some other group, they might not actually want your book or be willing to even give it a chance in some cases. Yeah, the problem with stuff like that is they might they might not, but the thing is nowadays you you can you have an audience. Right. Somewhere. Um if I can get away from movies a little bit, I'll go to what I know best is a uh, comic books. Right. And North America has always had independents and undergrounds. That's true. And, and you could always ever since the 70s, find books written for all kinds of audiences who normally nobody would think to do stories for. Right. Like, there was always, like, say, hardcore, like, feminist comics that would sometimes even venture into, like, the the man-hating type of stuff, and there was an audience. Right. Um, There was a big audience for, like, gay slice-of-life comics. Right. Like, that's still very popular. So there's an audience. It's it's part of our problem is we always look to the top. Ah, okay, yeah, that's true. So everybody thinks like what would get Avengers level viewership? Well, probably not something written for a very specific like Algonquin native uh science fiction story. That might not have Avengers appeal, but it doesn't matter cuz you can find somebody. Right. If you, yeah, you're right. If you really want to, you can find, thanks to the internet, fiction about anything with any kind of lead, with any kind of whatever setup. I mean, it's all out there somewhere. It's just a matter of that it might not be in the you know, billion-dollar range Hollywood movie type uh, category. Yeah. And that's, um, you have to remember, too, because the big budget stuff like, like that has to be lowest common denominator. Mm, that's true. So you're going to get really generic-looking like actors playing parts because you don't want anything that's going to, oh, that's just too different. Right. Even the idea of like using in North America, what would be considered minorities. 
I don't know if most people would care as much as the producers would, but the producers are, are concerned. They want yes. max appeal, so they're going to go with what they've been doing forever. Well, some of it does come down to, as we've talked about before, um, the classic Hollywood trap of if you're spending $100 million on a movie, actually these days, $300 million <laughs> on your big budget movie, you take as little risks as possible. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Because you can literally, for your career and everything else, you can't afford for that movie not to do well. Nope. I mean, so it's almost impossible for really, really big budget stuff to take risks unless there's some other incentive. Well, now, sorry, continue. Oh, I was going to say, you're right about the other incentive. But another thing, uh, and this goes back to why I I object to a lot of the uh, social justice crusaders protesting the media type things. Mm-hmm. Because it's always about, you shouldn't do this. Right. And that's always their complaint. You shouldn't do this kind of story. You shouldn't have this kind. And my argument would be, well, you're you're doing it wrong. If you think that there should be less of something, show us what there should be more of. Very true. And I don't say that facetiously, but it's good for any media mm-hmm. if if you did, like, say, science fiction with a gay lead. Right. Because yep. you can put different ideas out there. You can do something that's a little bit different, a little bit new, and you can expand your audience. Absolutely. I agree. 100%. And that's, and that's what I think you need. And then what ends up happening is that trickles up. Right. That if somebody does something that's a little bit different and it gets popular, well, then the, for, for the big producers, it's not as much mm-hmm. of a risk and you're more likely to see it. Yes, that's true. Okay, yeah, that's a good point. Things tend to trickle up through society rather than down. But, yep. well, some things trickle down, but they're not usually very pleasant. <laughs> um, yeah. The problem still remains that for most people, it's easier to complain than it is to actually do anything. Oh, very much. And and you run into a problem with, with audiences, especially for the, uh, the nerdly arts, mm-hmm, that they're mm-hmm. so used to being pandered to. Because, like you say, the big guys aren't going to take a risk. They're going to give you exactly what you want, exactly what you expect. Uh-huh. That you get audiences that complain and moan and cry about the stupidest things. Right. Um, and, and that's where you'll get, like, nerd rage. Superman's undies are on the inside of his tights! You're raping my childhood! And and you run into the problem that uh, no matter what you do, somebody's going to get pissed off. That's true. And the internet is going to be outraged. Yep. Because that's how people get their 15 seconds of internet fame these days. Yeah, and and it's it's finding that, uh, I guess, ability to ignore it. Mm-hmm. Uh, put, put whatever you want out there. Right. And see, because that's, um, but mm-hmm. that's why I actually, and it's weird for an independent underground guy like me to say this, but I feel bad for Marvel and DC Comics these days. Oh, why so? Well, it's that idea that, their old audience is dying off and leaving. Right. But there's enough of them that that's who they have to pander to. And they're completely unaccepting of anything a little bit new or a little bit different. Uh, dude, have you checked out Marvel Comics recently? Yeah. The uh, Marvel Comics you know, lineups that um, that is basically as minority packed as they can possibly get it at this point. I mean, I don't, I, I don't think there's many uh, white male superheroes left in the Marvel roster, not of the big names anyway at this point, um, because they're trying to, you know, include as many minorities as possible. 
from what I've seen, I think DC is pretty much just ignoring the issue and going straight ahead and not caring. But Marvel's doing the opposite. They're going all minority all the time, it seems. Well, they're, they are for now. They're also talking about their next big reboot for their, their world. And it'll be remarkably right. similar to the old. Probably. Yes, that's very true. And I'm, I bet it will be. Yeah, and I'm willing to bet that even though Marvel has more minority characters, they're not that different from the characters they had before. Quite possibly. But I would make I would make the argument that that's good because um, mm -hmm. the problem you run into with Marvel and DC, their characters are pretty old. Yeah, they are. And Marvel Comics started 62. Mm -hmm. It was still a time where it was unusual to, to see minority characters in, in a mainstream publication. Yes, it was. So New York, for the longest time, has been occupied by a really oddly high number of white people. Oh, yeah. Actually, I always found it amusing because, of course, I read those Marvel Essentials. and I find it amusing reading the 60s comics that what they what it really reminds me of. I, you've probably seen it at some point is the movie Breakfast at Tiffany's. <laughs> oh, God, that's that's the vibe I get. Like, it's that kind of hip white crowd vibe. That's what I get out of um, Marvel Comics from the 60s. Marvel's New York during the 1960s is basically, yeah, it's. 98% white people, and there's a few minorities wandering through the background. Maybe. Uh, yeah, maybe, exactly. Well, no, sorry, the black guy has to come from Wakanda. Yeah. He doesn't actually, he's not actually a local black guy who joins the Avengers, the Black Panther, of course. Mm. He's, he comes from, he's a black prince from all the way across the Atlantic Ocean. Right. <laughs> you know, you can't get a local black superhero. Oh, no, he, one has to come from the other side of the planet. No, you, you can, but he's got to be a jive-talking pimp from Harlem. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, Power Man, Luke Cage. Yeah, I'm also thinking of uh, Falcon when he first appeared. Well, that's true. But if I remember right, those characters didn't pop up until the 70s. Yeah. The... Like, Marvel had already been doing this shtick for, like, 10 years <laughs> yeah. before they started introducing. I think, though, I think that uh, I'm pretty sure Black Panther was introduced during the 60s. He's yeah. one of the very few black characters from the 60s that Marvel had. And again, he's not an American. No. Because as we all know, there are no black Americans. That would be weird. Well, not 1960. And then it was it was even worse with Asian characters. Yes. The only Asian character in Marvel Comics during that period that isn't a villain, mm -hmm. and there were a number of Asian villains, would be like Doctor Strange's houseboy character. Yeah, Wong. Wong, yeah. That's the only one I think I can think of from that period well and technically the ancient master from dr strange yes that's true well again because you know exotic all that stuff yeah. so inscrutable mystic wears a robe in a way um i guess it goes back to that idea that you often put about blaming the audience right right i mean the audience gets the media they deserve yeah they drag me down with them and they drag well everyone else down with them that's kind of a given yeah but i'm the important um, part well, okay, you are to you anyway. You are definitely the important part to you. And so since the audience, uh, the media reflects the audience, and the audience is currently very unhappy. Mm -hmm. Okay, no, that's not, that line's not going to work. No, it does. Uh, it does, because that goes okay. to your earlier point. Okay. Uh, when you look at, like, say, old-timey science fiction, it was about building, mm -hmm. because that's what people were thinking of. 
Right. People thought of, oh yeah, the future. And it was this place where we had robes and where we flew in like hover cars and stuff. And guns, lots of guns, apparently, according to H.B. and Piper, anyway. <laughs> well, according to a lot of them, because, you know, that was cool, and there'd be action, and... Right, exactly, two-fisted, uh, well, you know, two-fisted science fiction stories, that's what they were. Yeah, and then when you get to, like, the late 60s, early 70s, it was all post-apocalypse, mm-hmm. because people didn't see a future. Right. They, they, they didn't see that there would be amazing things yet to come... That all they they knew was things are just going to get worse. Well, hold on a sec, though. I mean, going back to my idea of building stuff, in a way, a lot of post-apocalyptic stuff, I think, now again, I'm not widely read in that time period, so I might be completely off base here, but I would think a good amount of it is probably about building a new civilization. Like, the old civilization wiped itself on out, and now it's these stories are about, at least in some cases, going out, going out into the world again, exploring, and hopefully building something new or starting something new. It is, but that new is typically the old. Okay. Like getting back to our old, because, and it's the same thing you hear from politicians now about getting back to the way things were. Right. And then when you got to the 80s, because that was like the decade where of indulgence in the 90s when they perfected like the pandering formula. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Science fiction just became about how awesome the individual was. Right. And then that's why you stopped having backgrounds and settings and everything became generic because they just sort of cut and paste. You know, we need flying cars. Well, make them like these ones. And we need right. Them. And and that's, I think, what happened is it's that idea of the audience affecting things. Mm. Because the audience became focused on the characters rather than the stories and ideas and development. So instead, everything shifted to a more character focus, for better and for worse. Yeah, because nowadays in most science fiction, it's about the character, and the character is obviously a Mary Sue. In a lot of cases, yes. That's true. And that's why you can have like a breakdancing contest with like the ultimate judge of the universe. And in the end, just because you're a magic special valuable individual you can still save the day just because you're watching the current season of doctor who then no i was thinking guardians of the galaxy okay there's that too yeah yeah there's that too but it's that running theme because it's all about the individual and i think again because they've perfected the formula for the audience and that involves a lot Mm -hmm. of pandering right that's absolutely true and again that goes back to my discussion of ready player one at the beginning of this conversation which is a book entirely designed to pander to the audience yep. and to make the eighties audience feel absolutely, uh, feel absolutely awesome. Yep. Wow. So what you're saying is in the end, the secret to writing and writing success actually is pandering to the audience. Oh, hell yeah. But doesn't that work against what we just mentioned a little bit earlier though, about, okay, any member of say a minority can put something out there, but how can you, write minority characters while still pandering to a mass audience. You don't, because the audience isn't one homogenous whole. Okay, so in that case, you're basically targeting niches then. You can call it that, and and yeah, I guess that would work. Because okay. And that's why I say the nice part about nowadays, because it used to be the companies were the gatekeepers. Right. And if your your idea wasn't going to sell to a certain minimum number... Right. Uh, they wouldn't touch it. Mm-hmm. But nowadays, you can put a story out that's going to sell to three people. 
That's true. And, Very easily. Yep. Oh hell yeah. Yeah. Possibly only. I think I I think <laughs> exactly. I think almost everything on um Kindle or you know, on the Kindle ebook store and that has probably at least sold three copies. Yeah. And it's it's good and bad. I mean I I think it's it's overwhelmingly good because it allows other ideas to get out there. Well, except that we're running into the needle in the haystack phenomenon where because everyone can write, everyone is and the uh, Sturgeon's law, you know, the ninety percent of everything is crap, <laughs> which is generous, um, which is really generous, <laughs> is turning into an absolute truism, unfortunately, for the Kindle ebook store. And I think it's losing some of its audience and turning some people off because of that. Yeah, and it's just hard. That's why I mentioned earlier that the the, the challenge is actually not necessarily writing a good book on the uh, Kindle store, you know, in the new ebook publishing age. The challenge is actually finding your audience or your audience finding it, to be more precise. Right. And that, I think, for most writers now, at least those are self-published or independent, indie as they refer to themselves now, um, are, no, indie works. I mean, you know, you're not part of the big companies, whatever. And it they, they, the idea is self-publishing. That term has a stigma, uh-huh. so people try to avoid it when possible. Yeah, I know, and that's how comic books became graphic novels. Very true. <laughs> but in any case, so this has become like their great scourge is, is that getting that audience is really, really hard. Yeah. And it's getting harder for people not only to find you, but also, sadly, I'd say to trust you as well. Right. This has become one of the big issues because Amazon just sued a whole bunch of people that were basically what they were doing is they were basically selling reviews. You could just pay them a couple bucks and they would go on Amazon and they'd write a glowing review of your book. Right. Or your whatever, whatever you put out. And so Amazon just sued a, like, I think 1600, <laughs> 1600 people who were basically doing this because they said you've broken the terms of agreement. And of course to do this, they had to have, they had to have Amazon accounts so therefore, they were under the terms of service. They'd made an agreement with Amazon. And I don't think they thought about that. That that terms of service doesn't just go away when you, even when you <laughs> get rid of your account or such. You have made a deal with this corporation, and sometimes they will take you up on that deal. Yeah. You know, th- that wording can be used against you. Can. Oh. <laughs> it does. It, it can often will <laughs> exactly. So you know, so that's become the greatest challenge, or sorry, one uh, the greatest challenge overall is just getting an audience to find you and getting that audience to trust you and actually read your stuff. Well, yeah, but that's always been the the challenge. Well, yes and no. I mean, before there was still a limited amount of stuff because we had the gatekeepers, whereas now there are no gatekeepers. Well, I mean, Amazon doesn't weed things except in star ratings, I suppose. And like I said, even those can be uh, mucked with. Yeah. Well, the old gatekeepers could too. The old gatekeepers definitely put out a ton of crap. There's no question on that. They let lots and lots of crap go through. Well, yeah, a lot of times on purpose because they'd be trying to cultivate an audience. Sometimes cultivate an audience. Sometimes they just had to have stuff on those shelves. Remember back in the old days when books were more, you could say commonly read. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we're a major uh, form of entertainment, mostly pre, you know, videotape, etc. Think about how many novels and how much stuff was being pumped out back in the old 
print days, yeah. basically. But there was a lot of that, too, that was crap, and they'd print, like, 2,000 copies of it. Oh, tons of it. Especially, like, those old action novels and things that you'll find in bargain bins yeah. at used bookstores and things. There were a lot of crappy novels written back in the day, <laughs> and there still are. There's still a lot of crappy novels being written, even print ones. I'm not even referring to the indie ones. Yeah. Um, the indie ones are crappy, and they have poor spelling, at least the <laughs> old ones. It's true, though. At least the um, old ones, they had seen something resembling an editor. So even if they were kind of crappy stylistically, they usually didn't have that many spelling and grammar mistakes or not to the same degree. Right. Whereas the indie stuff, it seems like some of these people didn't even bother to turn on Microsoft Word spell <laughs> grammar checker. Dudes and dudettes, just turn it on. Please, for the, for the love of God, please turn it on. Spellchecker is your friend. No, it's a tool of the bourgeois. Exactly, I know. <laughs> they're, being a, they're being artists by um, playing with... They're helping the English language to evolve and develop in new directions uh, by uh, new creative spellings and new creative grammar forms. I wish you hadn't have said that. <laughs> That's going to be a thing now. Oh, I'm waiting for it. In fact, I'm surprised it hasn't popped up yet. I'm surprised some, no one is actually doing that yet, claiming, no, no, man, it's art. It's art. And you can't tell me how to do art. <laughs> oh, I hate the human race sometimes. Those spelling mistakes, that comma is in that place because it's, it, it shows the nature of my soul and how my soul is displaced. No, it's the vowels that you don't write. Oh, dude. <laughs> Uh. Oh, boy. <laughs> wow, English is becoming more like Arabic then. Um, actually, I'd forgotten. Does Hindi have vowels? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Hindi, because I knew you studied Hindi. So I remember that um, Hindi, because Arabic kind of sort of does. I don't know if you've ever actually learned a little bit about Arabic, but Arabic is actually, for the most part, it's just consonants. Yeah, it works kind of like Hindi that when you have a vowel... It adds on to the, the consonant. is like, I think in Arabic, they're mostly the dots. Yeah, yeah, those those dot things. Yeah, exactly. And Hindi does that, where if you add a vowel, the letter is just drawn a little different with this extra thing to show it's like the vowel. Ah, okay, that's how it works. Because I know that's one of the reasons why you can get so incredibly many different uh, spellings of Arabic words in English. Yeah. Some of which are radically different from each other. Yeah. Because they're usually guessing on the vowels. Yep. Kind of, sort of, and just going with how they learned to pronounce that thing. Yeah, because there's a lot of sounds that we don't have in English. Yeah, exactly. So you got to kind of... Yep, they're lucky. Um, they get those special sounds that we don't get. Oh, well. well, I mean, Japanese is the same way. I know reading a lot of stuff, I have to mm -hmm. see the name written in Japanese to get the pronunciation. Right. Because you'll get all kinds of messed up stuff in English where they're trying to approximate the sound, but you can't because English doesn't work like that. Yes, that's true. Yeah, yeah. Japanese. Well, I think most languages are like that. Yeah. I think most languages are definitely like that. There are certain sounds that, yeah, they're trying their best to represent them, them phonetically or in some graphical form, but it doesn't quite work out. Yeah. One way or the other. Anyway, so we should probably bring this conversation on to a close. Okay. Um, tune in next time when we will talk about more stuff. And we might even surprise you with it. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Department of Nerdly Affairs. If you want show notes or to tell us why we're wrong, head on over to ObeyTheDNA.com and join the discussion. 
If you enjoyed the show, please tell a friend. And remember, to master the nerdly arts takes time, perseverance, and a whole lot of nachos. Do not be discouraged, for you too can be a light in the darkness. See you next time.